0: Well, I'm delighted to see so many of you here at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, Two two dedicated individuals. Um, The theme I want to explore uh, over the next hour or so is really this. The work culture of long hours, shift work, long commutes, 24-hour global communications, freedom from many economic, social constraints, and the 24-hour availability of almost everything have all conspired to demote sleep in our priorities. Uh, It seems to be one of the first victims of our 24-7 society. And what's also very striking is that this attitude, what I hope to convince you, is not only dangerous, uh, but unsustainable. It's also in stark contrast to the attitudes towards sleep that have prevailed in the pre-industrial age. I was struck by, there are many quotes in Shakespeare relating to sleep, but in Julius Caesar, we have this lovely quote, enjoy the honey-heavy dew of slumber. There's not much chance of that these days with uh, increasing demands on our, on, our, on our time in terms of uh, commuting and all of the other pressures. And also Henry IV, O oh sleep, O oh gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frightened thee? Well, I think we've all succeeded in frightening sleep away to a frightening extent, and that's gonna be the theme over the next hour. What I thought I'd do is divide the uh, presentation into these, uh, four, or these five sections. Talk about some of the biology of sleep and, and circadian rhythms. Uh, and, and we'll get into that in some detail. Then talk about the timing of medication, which I think is going to be an increasingly important area um, within the development of, of personalized medicine. Uh, talk about performance and time of day. We are very different creatures at different times of day that the young, surprisingly not enough, are not the same as us. Um, they're a strange creature, a group of creatures. Um, and then really finish with the impact of sleep loss and some very specific examples. We're a small enough group that if any of you wish to ask questions as we go through, if I've, I've been incoherent in any way, you'd like clarification, wave your hand, stop me, and we can, we can, we can uh, clarify and continue. Right, let's start with circadian and sleep rhythms. Now, these 24-hour body clocks and sleep processes have really captured the popular imagination. I have to say, not always helpfully, Um, and I thought I'd share with you some recent pain. Um, This was an article uh, in the Daily Mirror on time to set your body clock, Uh, and I worked quite hard with uh, Beth Gibbon, who I hope is not in the audience. Is Beth Gibbon in the audience? Anybody from the Daily Mirror in the audience? (laughs) That's, that's a relief. Um, and so I was fairly comfortable with statements like, natural rhythms rule our bodies and dictate the best time for a range of activities and here's our countdown. Left, less comfortable with things like, 10 a.m. have a bikini wax. <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. Uh, Pain intensity is at its lowest between 8 and 10 a.m., says Professor Russell Foster. Um, It's not entirely clear why, but it's probably because pain receptors aren't as alert as they are later in the day. Now, I promise you I never said that. Um, And I certainly never said, 6.30 p.m. heralds the start of two and a half hours of of sex and booze. So um, uh, you can't always believe everything you you read in the newspapers. Um, Of course, all this nonsense uh, is alluding to some extraordinary, wonderful biology. If we were to measure essentially any uh, physiological behavioral parameter in ourselves, we'd see very marked changes throughout the day. And I'm, I'm just illustrating one or two of them here, and we'll talk about the implications of these later on. The hormone melatonin, essentially nothing during the day, huge release at night, core body temperature. Very low point, four to six o'clock in the morning. In anticipation of activity, it rises to a peak in the early evening, six to eight o'clock in the evening, and then, in, and in anticipation of, of, of rest, it'll it'll drop off. Yes. Uh, will these slides be accessible anywhere? I can certainly make them into a PDF, and um, I, I guess we can make them available somehow. Yes. Matthew, no. Just, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I've also. <laughs> <laughs> I can also send you a review, a PDF of a review, which, which covers this as well. Um, so we've got this change in, in core body temperature, a change in alertness and, and cognitive performance, and we'll, we'll illustrate that in, in some detail later on, and other things. Um, so for, for example, even our ability to process fats, um, if you give an individual a constant infusion of, 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 of fat triglycerides, for example, the ability to get them out of the circulation uh, is is better during the day than the night. And and as we'll see, that may have some important implications for night shift workers. Essentially, the point I'm trying to make is that every parameter you measure has this this dynamic change, this this fine-tuning, this shifting by an internal representation of a day, these circadian rhythms. And of course, what they do is fine-tuned physiology and behavior to the varying demands of activity and rest. Now, these circadian rhythms, um, and of course from the Greek circa about about a day, persist under constant conditions, and that's a a very important point. So if you or I were to go down to a dim, dark cave, constant light, constant temperature, we'd still show these changes of core body temperature, sleep-wake, and all the rest of it. Clearly, if one would exercise, you'd, you'd, you'd elevate core body temperature, but it will be superimposed upon this constantly changing 24-hour baseline. Okay. Now, what generates it? Well, there's an extraordinary structure in the base of the brain called the suprachiasmatic, nu- suprachiasmatic nuclei, or the SCN. Essentially, the bridge, if you, if you make, imagine a line from the bridge of the nose to the temple and, and where they intersect... It's as the optic nerves go into the brain, and sitting just above the optic nerves, you have these two little structures here, about 50,000 cells in a human, and if these are damaged for any any reason, let's say you had a tumour in that region of the brain, then these 24-hour oscillations are gone. It's the master pacemaker within the brain. Now, a clock is of absolutely no use unless it's set to local time, and this internal day here is set as a result of exposure to the light-dark cycle which is detected by the eye. And much of the research we've been engaged in over the past 15 years has been in this this component here. And essentially, the mechanisms whereby if you flew from Heathrow to New York, um, you'd eventually lock onto New York time, and it's as a result of special receptors in here adjusting the clock. What's turned out to be really quite remarkable is that you can take a single neural cell from the SCN, and you can stick it in a dish and you can record 24-hour oscillations in electrical activity, which means that this this circadian rhythm is the property of subcellular mechanisms. And indeed, our understanding of those subcellular mechanisms has increased enormously over the past 10 years. As a result of studies in the fruit fly, mouse, and the human genome. And what's, I think, truly extraordinary is that the fundamental building blocks of this molecular clock have been conserved between flies, mice, and humans. And essentially, the whole animal lineage builds its clock in broadly the same way. So you have, what, 400, 450 million years of divergence between these extraordinary groups of, of animals, and yet we're building our clocks in broadly the same way. Now, the discovery of the molecular clock also helped us gain some really fundamental understanding of how the circadian system, this, this internal day, is organized. As I said, you have a light detecting system in the eye setting a clock in the SCN. And what we thought was happening is that this SCN was producing some sort of signal that was then driving rhythmicity in every, every other cell, every other organ system of the body. turned out to be actually rather different from that because these molecular clocks in these individual cells here occur in every cell in the body. They're not simply confined to the suprachiasmatic nuclei, which means that if you take a bit of liver out, you stick it in a dish, and you measure its activity in terms of, let's say, enzyme production, you'll see 24-hour oscillations for a few cycles before they damp out. So what's happening is that the SCN is acting rather like the conductor of an orchestra, producing a regular temporal beat from which the component parts of the orchestra, the stomach, the liver, the kidneys, all take their cue and align their rhythmicity accordingly. Now, if I were to shoot the conductor, then the stomach and the liver and the kidneys would begin to drift apart. Instead of a beautiful sort of symphony of of, of physiology, you end up with a cacophony of, of, of disrupted biology. And I think that's a great way to think about this sort of circadian structure, this internal day. What's also turned out to be fascinating is that mutations in some of these clock genes are being linked to particular sleep types. The classic example is in a condition called familial advanced sleep phase syndrome, and it's been traced actually now through four, perhaps even five generations since the original observation back in 2001. And these poor individuals will fall asleep at 7.30 in the evening And no matter what they've been doing during the day, they'll wake up at around about four o'clock in the morning. Their whole body clock has been shifted earlier in time. And what we found out, not us, but the groups in the United States, that a single tiny change in one of those clock genes is responsible for this profound impact upon complex behavior, the timing of the sleep-wake cycle. So there's the biology any questions so far about the nuts and bolts of the system? I thought, couldn't resist, yes? What about all those many people who are nocturnal? I mean, animals. Well, that's an extremely interesting question because the pattern of gene expression in the SCN of a mouse. Is exactly the same as the pattern in a human, as far as we can tell. It's not inverted. So a, a really very interesting question that I'm excited about is, is: is how downstream is the signal switched, and we and we simply don't know. And in fact, nocturnality and diurnality has some very important implications, as I'll touch on in a moment. Any other questions? Yes, at the back. Yeah. Is there a longer yeah, in fact, um, we've, just, we've just published, a, well, we just sent off to the publishers a second book on, on seasonal physiology because there is, there's an, in addition to this daily change, of course, there's also seasonal modulation. And we think that there are, that there's certainly the expanding and contracting day length is having a big impact on, on a variety of different aspects of, of our physiology and behavior. So, for example, um, susceptibility to disease changes throughout the seasons. In non-humans, uh, mammals like sheep, for example, it's that expanding and contracting day length which is driving reproductive responses. Um, a really interesting complex physiology there. Yes? Does it change where you live geographically? Well, that's also fascinating because susceptibility to multiple sclerosis, for example, and George Ebers has done some beautiful work in Oxford on that, there's a there's a, the further you go away from the equator, the greater your chance is of developing MS, and it seems that there's also a birth of a, 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 a month of a birth effect. So if you're born in March, March April, I think it is, there's about 11% greater chance of developing MS than if you're born in November. Now these are subtle effects, but they're they're statistically absolutely solid, and and one idea is that perhaps it's 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 maternal. Um, Vitamin D levels, which of course are are determined by exposure to sunlight, that may be important in these effects. So yes, lots of exciting seasonal modulation. Okay, we can come back to to mechanistic questions at the end. Let's now uh, move on to the timing of of medication. Well, in view of these dynamic changes, um, perhaps it's no great surprise that our responses to disease and treatments will also vary over the 24-hour day. And so there are lots of of time-of-day health implications. This is a paper now that's 10 years old by Smolensky, who plotted time of day on this axis and then looked at the peak time for a whole range of different pathologies and events. Now, we won't go through all of them. Some very interesting ones is the pain of osteoarthritis tends to be an evening pain, whereas rheumatoid arthritis tends to be a morning pain. Um, and so part of the initial screen that a GP may make is that are you having evening pain or morning pain? It's not absolutely diagnostic, but it's part of the, the general modulation of joint pain um, uh, by the clock. Asthma attacks, um, for certain forms of asthma, have a 300-fold greater chance of having an asthma attack between 2 and 4 in the morning than at any other time of day. Those are relatively mild, I suppose, depending upon your perspective, but the rapid rise in blood pressure is having hugely important effects. These data show the rise in blood pressure rising from around about 6 o'clock in the morning peaking to around about 12 noon. And again, let me stress, this change in blood pressure will occur irrespective of what you're doing. So if you're lying completely flat on a bed, Throughout the whole day, you'll still see this change in blood pressure. <laughs> and so what activity will do is then um, superimpose blood pressure uh, upon this moving baseline. <laughs> and, if you can cur- and and then if you look at the numbers of individuals having heart attacks, then you see there's a huge peak in this early hours uh, o- o- of the day, about a 40 f- to 50% greater chance of heart attack in this sort of 6 a.m. to 12 noon window. Big, big numbers here. In the same way, stroke, there's a 49% greater chance of having a stroke between 6 a.m. and 12 noon compared to any other time of the day. And again, the data are really quite marked. Overall, taking all natural causes of death into account, there's an almost 30% greater chance of dying between uh, 6 a.m. and 12 noon than at any other time of the day. So when it comes to 12 noon today... And let's hope we're all here. You can have a sigh of relief, because quite seriously, you've survived the most dangerous part of the day. Okay. in view of these dynamic changes, what you might predict, of course, is that we would all be taking the right drug in the right amount at the right time. Now, on the whole, we usually get the right drugs, more or less. Right amount, I'm not sure about, and right time, is very rarely taken into consideration. Most drugs and drug treatments are not given on the basis of body time, but on the basis of convenience alone. And it's worth asking your GP, well, why are you telling me to take this with with food? It may well be that the drug will have some irritant effect upon the stomach, but invariably it's because when you're eating, you can associate taking the medication. You don't forget to take the medication, and indeed, compliance is one of the great problems uh, of taking medications. Now, you challenge the drug companies, and I, and I, and I do get funding from, from drug companies, but and I, and I do, do chat to them quite a bit. Um, and you talk to them, and they say, "Yes, of course, well, of course, we know about all this. You know, this is this is this is old stuff. We know all about this, but we've, we've, we don't have to worry about it, because." Um, we develop drugs that survive in the body for long periods of time, and so essentially more or less peak um, uh, coincide with, with a peak in the pathology. And then you point out, of course, this is actually rather a dangerous strategy because it greatly increases the potential side effects that medications may have. What you're doing, of course, is then giving a drug at a higher concentration that's required for longer than required, and as we know... Side, uh, the side effects lead to the, to the taking of more drugs. It's very rare that you're just on one type of medication. It's usually associated with other medications which are uh, dealing with some of the side effects. And so you can get locked into, oops, can get locked into this pattern of side effects, drugs, more side effects. Um, and that's, I think, the point I'm trying to make here is that we could be a lot more intelligent about the way we deliver uh, our drugs. Drug timing is really important. Intelligent testing of drugs is also something I'd like to touch on. We use rats and mice, and, and, the, and the lady here was talking about nocturnality versus diurnality, and that's the point I want to make here. We are a diurnal species, and invariably drug testing is, is, is taken uh, on us during, during the day, not during the sleep phase. Whereas drug testing on rodents, uh, we're waking them up in the middle of their sleep phase and testing them and extrapolating 12 hours back to the wake phase. So already, on the basis of what I've told you, that may not seem like the smartest thing to do. But the big question is, does 12 hours really matter? Well, in some cases, it very much does. This is, again, an old study looking at the um, delivery of a bacterial toxin to, uh, I think it was mice. Yes, it was mice. And this is the percent mortality. And you see that towards the end of the light phase, 80% mortality in this group of mice and dropped to around about 20% mortality uh, 12, well, in fact, 10 to 12 hours later on. So time of day is having a big effect on the impact of these drugs uh, on the mice. Now, I don't think dangerous drugs have reached the market because of inappropriate drug testing. I think the problem here is that we may have lost some really very valuable drugs because when they were initially screened, they turned turned out to have pretty bad side effects. And essentially, the research on those drugs was then curtailed because it was thought that they really wouldn't be suitable for human use because of the high toxic effects. If they'd been used at a different time, then perhaps the responses would have been different. And and, and our engagement with the drug companies is to to go back and say, look at the old back catalogue. You're sitting on lots and lots of interesting drugs that you've stopped research uh, on, because, of course, you've got an initial response which, which suggested that it would be quite toxic. So I think there's great scope, again, to go back there. A real-life example where time of day is having a big effect upon our survival, and that's in the treatment of childhood leukaemia. And again, I'm, I'm illustrating this with relatively old studies. This study by Rivard, which has been repeated um, many times since, has shown that you can give this cocktail of drugs to children. And if they received it in the evening or the morning, those that had it in the morning had a a two-and-a-half-fold greater chance of relapse than those that had it in the evening. And as a result of that study, uh, this cocktail of drugs is now always given in the evening rather than the morning. But invariably, time of day is not taken into account in the delivery of these sorts of treatments. And again, the intelligent use of time of day could be extremely important. Okay. Before we move on to performance, any quick questions, or we can do all this at the end. Yes. Yes, that's interesting. Um, the The data are less clear than you might think on that, because I think if we have a, drunk a a a glass of wine at lunchtime, it certainly for me, it actually tends to make me feel less. It has, seems to have more effect over lunchtime than it does in the evening. And there is a general trend within the population that evening you, can, you can take more alcohol in in the evening than you can um, uh, during, during lunchtime, but there's quite a bit of individual variability. So when you look at the, 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 the data overall, it's very noisy. Yeah. But there are absolutely time-of-day of effects. And again, it's the clock regulating the liver's uh, 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 production of the enzyme that breaks down alcohol. Okay, Yes. Well, I think that's an extremely good point. And in fact, what I'm going to go on to next is how our performance varies throughout time of day. And, and knowing that, we can essentially, again, modulate our, our behaviors accordingly. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a, a good point. OK, <clears throat> any athletes in the audience? Um, runner, by any chance? Oh, perfect. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so I'm going to show you some data in a moment. And i can see if see you, if, you, if you agree with it. Um, runner, OK. Lots of studies have been done in runners, Well, let me just <coughs> give you the background for it. This change in core body temperature has been associated with changes in athletic performance. As I say, this is the baseline change. If you exercise, you'll superimpose um, a, an elevated temperature, but it's on this moving baseline. And runners have been shown to, do much more, uh, uh, to beat, more, beat more records in the afternoon than in the morning. That's a bit awkward. Those data are a little bit complicated because, of course, most events tend to be in the afternoon rather than the morning and for broadcasting reasons and all the rest of it. Where we have really good data, where we can control for external changes in temperature and a whole range of different other variables, is in swimmers. And This is a lovely study which looked at the ability to swim 100 metres either at 6.30 in the morning or uh, around about 6 o'clock in the evening. And the difference is extraordinary. Swimming 100 metres, you can swim 2.7 seconds faster at 6 o'clock in the evening than 6 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, if you've been watching the Olympics recently, 2.7 seconds is the difference between coming first and a really embarrassing, toe-curlingly bad last. Um, (coughs) um, So, again, a good example whereby... Most of the time, we're completely unaware of this subtle modulation of, of of our physiology. But if you push physiology to the edge, as in disease and as in <laughs> athletic performance, that's when time of day begins to emerge as having really significant effects. I'm ca- I just want to come back to our swimmer here. Uh, does that tally with your? Uh, well, I don't. I'm really good enough swimmer. That's <laughs> 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 Mm-hmm. I often then can't get to sleep. Ah. Oh, that's a really interesting... We can, uh, we, we, let's talk about that later, because Other core body and sleep is really important. And, and it also doesn't work if you train in the morning, because then you can good up in the afternoon, you feel shattered. Yeah, you have that mid-afternoon. Uh, an exaggerated mid-afternoon dip. Well, that's, that is, that's great, because that exactly tallies with what I would have predicted. Yeah. Yes? I'm curious. You mentioned the Olympics, uh, the American sex world. Did you do something in the Olympics? Do you know, I, I don't know when those, those um, uh, um, races w- w- were set. Certainly, um, everybody's been sending their, their individuals over for weeks beforehand so that they get completely adapted to the local time environment. Because, as we'll see later on, adjustment to the local time zone is critically important, as we'll discuss with shift workers. There was a, another question, I think. Yes? It was, it was related. It was in terms of a yeah. uh, suboptimal time of day. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes and no. The problem about shift work and jet lag, as we'll, we'll discuss sort of later on, is that it's a smear. Um, so, let's, when one travels from London, let's say, to New York, it's not that you're five hours time different, it's that all the internal rhythms are misaligned. So that the brain is a slightly different time from the stomach, which is a different time from the, the kidneys and the liver and all the rest of it. And it's this internal desynchrony which makes us feel so ill. Um, so really what you need to do is get over there and allow enough time to adapt to the new time zone so you're eating at the appropriate time you know, a, a, and, of course, uh, doing physical exercise at the appropriate time. Last, last question, here. Right. I think that's a great question, and I don't know the answer. I think what we'd have to do is get our decathons here with straps and devices on them and look at them. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of work going on in this area in Loughborough, University of Loughborough, uh, where they have a, a big sports medicine group. I once asked that question to any athletes in the audience, and Roger Bannister <laughs> put up his hand, um, and uh, he gave me a bit of a grilling, actually. <coughs> OK, well, let's look at another area, which is cognitive performance. And I think intuitively we would all agree that we may not be at our best between 4 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, But what I want to illustrate is how very badly impaired we are. This is a a lovely study by Lamond and Dawson. And what they did was look at the drop in cognitive performance. And here's here's standard, and this is a drop away from baseline, with time of day and alcohol consumption. So let's look at the first data set for, uh, here. So what we're seeing is that individuals are consuming alcohol, and this is the blood alcohol concentration, and this is their drop in performance.? OK? And it comes a huge surprise to many of you, but as you drink your abilities to perform, a whole variety of tasks actually drop off. Now, at a blood alcohol concentration of a, I think it's .085, um, you're legally drunk in the U.K., and I think many other European countries. And that produces a drop in cognitive performance of around about minus 15. Let's now do the same experiments. The variable this time is time of day. So throughout the day, there's a little bit of a mid-afternoon dip. Again, quite variable, depending upon what you've been doing. I mean, your your experience of doing vigorous exercise in the morning can actually exaggerate that mid-afternoon dip, so that fits in beautifully. But it's not a huge effect. Where you see a massive effect is after around about 8, 9, 10 o'clock in the evening, you see a huge drop in cognitive performance. So that 4 to 6 o'clock in the morning, your ability to perform cognitive tasks is worse than if you were legally drunk. And of course, you can show that this is an endogenous rhythm here because, look, even though these people have been awake longer, their ability to perform tasks is actually better than these individuals here. Lovely illustration of the circadian clock-driven change in cognitive performance. And if you take nothing from this lecture other than the fact that if you're driving a car at four to six, six o'clock in the morning, you have a four to five times greater chance of having an accident than any other time of the day. So it's it's very serious, and, 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 and we'll illustrate why it's serious again later on in, in the presentation. Is there, a, is there a known compounding effect well, to 2 a.m.? Yeah. Um, uh, the prediction would be yes, but I don't know those data. Yes, and that would s- certainly, if you combine alcohol consumption with time of day effects, it w- you would predict an exaggeration. But I'm not sure if that's actually been done. It certainly wasn't done in the original study. Be worth <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, again, no great surprise. Um, young people are, are different from the rest of us. Um, are, are there any teenagers in the audience here? Oh, splendid. Good. I, I will call upon you maybe later on um, for, some, for some input. <coughs> all right. Well, I think we're all aware of the fact that there are evening people and morning people. Evening people are those that like to get up late and, and go to bed late. Morning people um, uh, go to bed uh, early and get up early. And interestingly enough... Tiny changes in some of those clock genes are being associated with an evening or a morning preference. So there's a genetic component to our our predisposition for being morning and evening people. But there's also a very important developmental aspect. Um, And it changes really very markedly with age. This is some lovely work done by my mate in Munich, Till Renneberg, um, who has plotted here morning to evening preference in a whole range of different tasks with age along this axis. Now, what you see is that from the age of 10, males, which is the blue line, go to bed later and later and later and later and later and later, until around about the age of 21 and a half and then start to turn. And at around about 50, they're going to bed and waking up at the same time as females who tend to rise, go to bed later and later and later, never as bad as males, and turn earlier, sort of around about 19 and <coughs> a half, and then... Um, again, collapse to this sort of a- age of 50. Um, till, I- 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 I'm loath to discuss this, but as we're all friends, I will. Um, he said, till said, and this explains why old men marry younger women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they're going to bed and-, and waking up at about the same time. <laughs> I-, I leave you to make your own judgment on that. The point I wanted to make is that if you take a 20-year-old and you compare them to a 50-year-old, 50, 50 the the wake and rise times are about two hours shifted, on average. Um, and so the data I've been showing you earlier is sort of on the average adult. So this cognitive performance here, we're, we're beginning to wake up at around about 8 o'clock in the morning. We're beginning to sort of uh, become awake. And that's for the average adult. But if you take an adolescent, a teenager, their ability to... Um, uh, start cognitive processing is beginning to rise at around about 10 o'clock on average in the morning. Um, and for a very significant group, perhaps as much as 10 to 20%, it's been estimated there's a four hour delay. So they're beginning to wake up at 12 noon. Now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the te- so did, are, are you morning, evening, are you disastrous at getting up in the morning? Yeah. You are, okay. Has it got worse since you've, you've got older? okay well well you'll be glad to know that by the time you're fifty um you'll'll you'll <laughs> <laughs> it'll have resolved itself okay <clears throat> um, i i i think that's, that's that's very that's an extremely important point which we'll come to at the end that's that The duration of sleep is different from the timing of sleep and sleep duration. This is having hugely important effects on sleep duration because what's going on, of course, is that people are not going to bed at sunset anymore. They're going to bed much later because of electric light, so they're going to bed later, but they're getting up early because the electric light and the alarm clock is telling them to get up, go to school, go to work, and so what you find, and I'll show you the data for this later on, that this has a big effect on sleep duration and changing sleep duration has a big effect on our performance. So you're absolutely right. Okay. So teenagers and young adults are being forced to function at a time of day, which is suboptimal for performance. (coughs) Now, I reviewed, does this, oh yes, this is actually quite important data. Does this matter? Some lovely work by David Goldstein and Lynn Hasher, University of Toronto, there's a lovely new center there on circadian and cognitive performance, have actually asked teenagers and adults to perform a whole range of tasks, either mid-morning or mid-afternoon. Now, the teenagers improved by greater than 10%, whereas their teachers went down um, significantly in the mid-afternoon. Um, actually, very important, because, of course, if you ask a teacher... And are there any teachers in the audience here? OK. <laughs> right, you're going to probably really start to get irritated with me now, but I, let's, let's discuss it. If you ask a teacher, generally speaking, when is the class best able to perform, let's say, mathematics or some other um, high cognitive task, they'll say definitely mid-morning. The data, the solid data, suggest actually they would be better in the mid-afternoon. Your ability to teach (laughs) is better in the mid-morning compared to the mid-afternoon. The kids are half-asleep. So they're easier to control. So by the time mid-afternoon comes along, you're tired, your cognitive performance has gone uh, down, and they're bouncing off the walls. Um, So uh, this change in in, in our our cognitive abilities and the perception of our abilities is really quite important, I think, in the the teaching environment. I tried to outline this in an article to the Times Higher. um, uh, Well, actually, gosh, 5th of January 2007. And put all the data together, and, you know, I was really quite pleased with this, got quite a bit of um, uh, debate going. And then the Daily Mail got hold of it. Um, And uh, we had this thing. (laughs) Yeah. So you can imagine what happened when I entered the tea room uh, the next morning. Um, And one of my colleagues said to me, Oh, you haven't seen you know, the, the best of it. Go online um, and, and look what people are saying. Um, and Barry McKay, who I've <laughs> never met, <laughs> made comments like this. <coughs> okay. So this is, this is a, I think, an area of, of serious debate, but again, we, we, have, we have the Daily Mail to deal with. Okay. So really, again, coming on to the, to, to the, to the ladies, ladies' point, um, society is... Sleep, um, problems are more complex than, than a mal- maladapted clock. Um, the impact of sleep loss is, is really, this, the, the, I think, the, the most dangerous part of, of, of our, our, our manipulation of the 24 7 society. Society is generally sleep deprived, and it's for a whole range of different reasons. I mean, largely the invention of the electric light bulb has, has allowed us to change profoundly uh, our our, our activities and uh, and extend them into the night. You could say, well, we were surely doing this with candles and things. Well, candlelight is is fairly dim, but also it's worth bearing in mind that during the 18th and, in fact, a big chunk of the 19th century, the cost of a candle was the equivalent of of a working man's daily wage. So people didn't really have much access to artificial light. And, of course, if they were burning fat, they were burning food. And that simply wasn't a luxury until, really, the the, the, the 18th century. These are some data from 2001 from a colleague um, uh, uh, from uh, Chicago, University of Chicago, showing um, the average amount of sleep every 24 hours for the various age groups. And they're bouncing around six to seven hours. Some other data has suggested that there's been quite a marked change from the 1960s to fairly recently. This is a a bit of an outlier here. It suggests that adolescents were getting over nine hours of sleep at the turn of the last century. Oh, sorry, the turn about around about 1900. The data there aren't particularly solid. The data are solid from around about the 1960s, where people were getting over eight hours of sleep and that's dropped by almost two hours in the space of 20 years or so, for a whole variety of reasons, largely due to the pressure of work. So that's the normal working individual. Where things become even worse is in night shift workers. And that's what I'd like to spend the last part of this talk um, um, uh, discussing. Nearly 20% of uh, employees in the industrialized countries are employed in, in shift work of some form certainly out of hours working. And many get less than five and a half hours of sleep every 24 hours. Um, and if one did that to a political prisoner, um, you would be had up in the International Tribunal at The Hague. That would be torture. And yet, a significant number of people are sleeping five uh, and a half hours or less every 24 and the really important point to make, which is what people don't appreciate, is that even if you've been on the night shift for 20 years, your body clocks do not shift their, their time in response to the demands of working at night. Do any idea why? Why, when you fly from London to New York, do you shift to New York time, but if you're working night shifts, you don't shift? Exactly. It's exposure to the local light-dark cycle that's critical. If you increase the amount of light in the workplace by four to five times up to sort of 2,000 lux and then you hide individuals from natural light during the day, they will shift. The really important thing to appreciate is that natural light is so much brighter than than, than office lighting. So um, after dawn, sunlight is some 50 to 100 times brighter than average office lighting conditions and by noon it's 500 to 1,000 times brighter. The clock will always defer to the brightest signal as being day. And that's why we're locked on. Um, Shift workers are locked on to the time zone. So let's think about what a night shift worker has to do. Of course, they have to work when physiology is in the resting state. And what you can't possibly expect under these circumstances is peak performance. Now, you can cognitively override the effects of wanting to go to sleep, but you are impaired. It's even worse because of sleep loss. Essentially, when you finish the night shift and you go back home and you're tired, Um, the body clock is saying, hang on, this is daytime. You should be out and active. So the quality of sleep that you get is very poor. Hence this five and a half hours. Even though part of the the exhaustion has kicked in, the clock is saying, no, you should be up and active. So you have this mismatch between body time and the demands for sleep, which result and conspire uh, in, in shift workers having such appalling sleep on the whole. Okay. So... You have the wrong body time as a shift worker, and you suffer um, significant sleep loss, and collectively the health problems are turning out to be very striking. And all of these parameters here have been well documented as being associated with shortened and disrupted sleep, usually within the context of uh, of, of night shift workers. I won't go through all of them, but I would like to illustrate some of these. Let's start with drowsiness, micro and unintended sleep. This illustrates some very important points. And This is a study um, from nuclear power workers in Sweden. Um, 60% of these uh, individuals uh, admitted to falling asleep once a week. 25% said that they fall asleep four to five times a week and 15% said that they fell asleep at least ten times a week. This is what they admitted to doing. 33% of the workers admitted that falling asleep had caused a significant error or near-miss once a year. And I think this is what's so chilling, is that the controllers, all the five controllers of this nuclear power plant were being monitored for sleep stage using EEG throughout the whole of the night. And in one point in the middle of the night, all five had fallen into stage two, stage three sleep. They'd actually, Some of them had even got into slow-wave sleep. They then woke themselves up, and then the researchers went in and said, um, are you aware that you've just fallen asleep? And they'd say, don't be so bloody stupid, and of course in Swedish, not in English. Um, because they weren't aware that they were impaired, and that's the hugely dangerous thing, because you're, 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 you're making mistakes, but you're not aware that you're making mistakes. And that's why it's so very, very dangerous. And why people think that they can drive at 4 to 6 o'clock in the morning perfectly well. And that's why the accident rate is so high. Metabolic problems, um, weight gain, weight loss. Again, Ev Van Coutter, University of Chicago, has done some lovely work here. This cartoon um, trivializes it a little bit, but but let me explain what's going on. Um, Ev took healthy young males, um, and she allowed one group to have four hours of sleep every night, and the others could stay in bed for 10 hours. And then after a week, she looked at a whole range of just sort of hormonal changes. Now, the hunger hormone, ghrelin, after seven days, had gone up by something like 28%. The increase in carbohydrate consumption after that um, uh, seven-day period had gone up, I think, from 35 to 40% in some individuals. So what Ev and her colleagues have shown is that with sleep loss, the hormone ghrelin, the hunger hormone, is released and that leads to increased carbohydrate consumption and ultimately to weight gain, whereas the hormone leptin, which is that hormone that makes us feel full, those levels dropped by around about 17% in that study, and um, uh, as a result, uh, the drop in leptin and the rise in ghrelin again increased uh, uh, the the carbohydrate consumption. So there's now good evidence, metabolic evidence, uh, mechanistic evidence for understanding surveys like this which again is from Colombia, which showed that hours of sleep correlate very nicely with the likelihood of being obese. So, less than four hours, there's a 73% likelihood of being obese, five hours, 50%, six hours, 23%. I'm not saying that going, not going to sleep is going to cause obesity. Clearly not. If you're, not doing, um, uh, if you're awake for 20 hours, then you're probably going to be eating more anyway. But the point is that there's a metabolic predisposition that associates sleep loss with increased carbohydrate consumption. And indeed, it accounts perhaps for why night shift workers are so much heavier than day shift workers. Also, I think the sorts of food available to night shift workers is usually very poor. It's going to be fast food, full of sugars, full of carbohydrates. So we could think, I think, intelligently about what we feed our night shift workers or make available to them. Decreased cognitive performance, ability to concentrate and remember, communication decision skills. This is a lovely study looking at the fully rested brain. um, And this is a a brain imaging uh, scan uh, performing mathematical tasks. You see lots of areas of the brain lighting up in this rested individual. In a sleep-deprived individual, this is what the brain is doing. (coughs) So not a great deal of activity going on here. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of the impact of sleep loss on our ability to perform um, cognitive uh, functions and and, and and processing generally. And the, yes, of course. Um, you that I'm well, your question your your question couldn't have been uh, better timed because the point I was going to make is that oops that brains like this indulge in. Increased stimulant and sedative use. Um, and let us I, I know there's a question. Let's just deal with this, this topic and, th- and then move on. What I think is extraordinary in this sleep-deprived society, and, of course, in night shift workers, and, of course, particularly in your, 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 your area, you are woken up by the alarm clock in the morning. And, and incidentally, if you need to know how much sleep you need, and there's a lot of individual variability, if you are utterly dependent upon an alarm clock to wake you up, then you're not getting enough sleep, broadly speaking. Um, So you wake up um, by the alarm. And um, if you're reasonably bad, then you'll start consuming um, things like caffeine, To keep you going through the day, if you're really naughty, you'll go for nicotine. Nicotine is extraordinarily effective at staying on task and stimulating cognitive performance. The trouble is with caffeine and nicotine is that for some people, um, they take a long time to get cleared from the circulation. So it comes to midnight, and they're thinking, God, I've got to get up in the morning. The alarm's going to wake me up. I've got to get some sleep. How do I sleep? Well, of course, they turn to alcohol, they turn to uh, uh, drugs of some sort. Now, these will induce sleep, but they do not mimic biological sleep. As a result, you have impaired sleep, so you're waking up by the alarm clock in the morning, even further impaired, further acquiring your nicotine, your caffeine, or indeed other sorts of stimulants. And many individuals are sort of locked into this stimulant sedation feedback loop, which is, I think, so very damaging to, to, to many of us. Interesting statistic I heard the other day which is that um, after oil, coffee is the highest traded commodity on the open market, which gives you some sense of our huge consumption of, of coffee. Now, there was c- another question, I think, related to this area somewhere over here. No? All right. Well, it p- fits perfectly, I think, with the, with the point that you're making. Um, yeah. How long it take? It takes about 30 minutes to kick in on average. But, but, the, but the rate it's degraded in the circulation can take quite some time. I mean, to some people, it can, it can be very quick. I mean, it can be gone basically the half life, I think, of, I can't remember the specifics, but certainly gone half life of around about 60 minutes. Others, it can be much as like four hours. So, so you know, coffee into the middle of the afternoon can significantly delay um, bedtime uh, for certain individuals. And that's why I think the, the rule of thumb is ideally you don't take it after 12 noon. It depends, I, I mean, th- it's supposed to be, but I have to say that my own experience doesn't reflect that. Um, so it's not an area I know much about, but, um, yes. I mean, there's, there's, it's supposed to be the same. The caffeine in, in tea is supposed to be the same as coffee. Yeah. Does decaf it have as much N- No, it, it, it generally, if you need to tra- take coffee in the afternoon, take decaf, yes. I think there was a question there. Is weight loss uh, helped by sleep Yes, and um, that's... Right. That's the absolute. Well, I'm I'm, I'm drifting into Daily Mail territory here, but 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 certainly on the basis of the what we understand of the mechanisms of of ghrelin and leptin, increased sleep should reduce ghrelin levels. Yes, and therefore your 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 predisposition to consume carbohydrates. Yeah. So you know those data I think are really very very interesting. Well, you see, that's another good point. Um, because what, uh, what um, people like Ev say is that because of the availability of lots of sugar and carbohydrate in the last 50 years, kids, for example, um, who are sleep-deprived, um, are, 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 are taking advantage of this easy access of, of, of sugar and, and, and carbohydrate. And, and, and she would argue, I'm not sure if I entirely agree, that the childhood obesity at the moment is laid, you know, can be laid at the door of shortened sleep. Uh, in, in adolescence. I, I, I think it could be a contributing factor. Um, but of course, it also conspires with a the, with the greater availability of, of carbohydrates as well. Yeah. Okay. Reduced Im- immunity to disease and viral infection, and, and I should probably start to wind up, is also, I think, a, a very interesting area. This is an extraordinary study, which I was amazed about, is that natural killer cell activity, which is one of the, the cells of the immune system, is markedly altered in in, in humans by sleep deprivation. So one night without sleep has shown to lower the activity of natural killer cells by as much as 28%. Huge impact. And sleep deprivation and reduced immunity may be part of the reason for high rates of cancer in night shift workers compared to day shift workers. There's some very good data now that's been reviewed by the Medical Research Council which has looked at nurses working um, a night shift versus a day shift and compared their rates of breast cancer and colorectal cancer. And night shift workers clearly have higher rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer. These studies were also supposed to take into account a whole range of confounding factors, if you're a smoker and all the rest of it. I think there's something important here. I I certainly wouldn't say night shift causes cancer, but but I think the link would be that if you're working on the night shift, the clock is saying, go to sleep. Now is bedtime. What you have to do is cognitively override that. The way you do it, of course, is you activate the stress axis, glucocorticoids. And what we know about, for example, high levels of cortisol is that they're immunosuppressive so that may be the basis for why individuals who are sleep deprived are immune suppressed because of course they're stressed the data aren't there to support that statement but that will be um, i think the way to go forward to study that phenomena okay we're done conclusions and discussion what i hope i've been able to convey in the last hour or so is to give you some idea of the biology of circadian rhythms and, and a little bit about sleep. There's, there's some fascinating biology here in sleep that we haven't really gone into. The fact we are not the same creature over the 24-hour day, our ability to respond and do a range of things changes. So, For example, the impact of medications will vary markedly over the 24-hour day, and we need to take this into account. Our ability to perform both cognitive and athletic tasks vary throughout the day. The fact that young individuals, adolescents, are different from the rest of us, and perhaps we should cut them some slack. And if we can move demanding classes to the afternoon, then why not? Why not make the educational experience easier for them? Um, Again, we need to think about that. And then finally, we finished up with the impact of sleep loss, illustrated I think most spectacularly with night shift workers, and a range of studies that are emerging showing that sleep deprivation and sleep disruption is being associated with a whole raft of pathologies, which we're broadly ignoring um, at the moment. Now, to finish, one thing I'd just like to touch on is, is good sleep hygiene. So what do we do about the teenager that wants to go to bed and get up late? Well, knowing that they have this predisposition, what we need to do, of course, is Count back eight or nine hours from when the alarm clock goes off and say, ideally, this is the time you should be asleep. How can we aid that process? Well, you need to really try and stabilise your sleep-wake times. Be fairly regimented about it. Get up and go to bed at the same time. Get regular exercise, preferably in the morning. Get regular exposure to outdoor or bright lights, particularly in the morning. Keep the temperature of the bedroom (coughs) cool. It's so rather important. Now, who was saying... Ah, oh, yes, the, the, uh, I think the athlete, uh, the swimmer. So core body temperature. A drop in core body temperature has been associated... If you prevent a drop in core body temperature, it's actually more difficult to get to sleep. And that's presumably what you were doing. You, your core body temperature was, was up. So what you may want to do under those circumstances is have a hot shower. vase dilate, and that, that'll be easier to get rid of, of core temperature. Um, so keep the bedroom... Uh, people's bedrooms are way too hot. Uh, Keep the bedroom quiet when sleeping, of course, dark. Critically uh, important to keep the the bedroom as dark as possible. Um, And and also, more in the elderly, keep feet and hands warm. This has turned out to be some lovely study from from Switzerland showing that, um, particularly in the elderly, if you have cold hands and feet, you can't move blood from the core to the periphery very easily. You vasoconstrict. And, of course, it's that drop in core body temperature that's important for initiating sleep. And so when people have actively warmed hands and feet, in the elderly again particularly, they've felt going off to sleep is more easy. So, so the whole idea of bed socks and, 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 and mittens may not be such a daft idea after all. And finally, um, do not watch television in bed. Get the televisions out of their rooms. Sorry, is, am, I, am I causing real problems for you now? Um, <clears throat> I hope not, but really, you, know, you must get it out there because it's so tempting just to poke the thing on. Um, don't argue with your parents before going to bed. Really important, that. Um, don't have caffeine in the evening. Don't use alcohol to get you off to sleep for the reasons we've discussed. It'll induce sleep, but it'll disrupt the biology of sleep. Um, go to bed too hungry or too full. Don't take sleeping tablets if you can possibly avoid it. Don't take stuff from over the counter. Naps, not a discussion about naps. Um, the data there is slightly controversial, but an, a nap in the middle of the afternoon that's no longer than 20 to 30 minutes is probably okay. But if you're taking a nap of 40 minutes or longer, you're probably going to disrupt sleep at night. Again, some some caution with that, but, but on average. And then finally, don't get stressed about it. Don't start commanding yourself um, to go to sleep. And with that, I'll... I'll, I'll Uh, and we don't... We, we do, there's, there's lots of reasons for that. First of all, there's some evidence that the, the suprachiasmatic nuclei, that master pacemaker, isn't working as well as it did. Um, and, and that's hand-waving. There's some, some arguments that the, there are anatomical changes going on in that structure. But we, don't, we can't really correlate that specifically. One very interesting thing is if you take the extreme elderly individual who's in the night uh, in, in, a, um, in a nursing home of some sort... Now, it's been shown that in the nursing home environment, um, you can encounter as little as two minutes of natural night every day. And that simply isn't enough as a strong signal to hit the clock and set it to local time. So what happens in those individuals is the clock starts to drift. Sleep-wake patterns get later and later and later. And then, to stabilize the sleep-wake, the individuals are then put on some sort of sedative. And it's been shown very recently in a lovely study by Ous van Summeren from the Netherlands. And this was in a nursing home environment, and the individuals were demented. Uh, they had uh, signs of dementia. He turned a ragged sleep-wake profile into a beautiful square wave function by having bright lights in the living areas during the day, darkness in the bedrooms at night. And what was also significant is that he, he actually improved the cognitive performance uh, of, these, of these individuals. Not by a huge amount, but by a significant amount. So again, there's lots of reasons why um, the elderly may find sleep-wake more of a problem. Bladder function is a- also one of them. But exposure to a robust light-dark cycle is, has shown to be particularly important. And with that, I should, should finish um, and then take questions. Yes, question. Um, could you say something about the effect of blindness? Oh, oh, I'm so glad you said that, because this is, this is my research. Um, Um, How long have we got? No, not not long (laughs) enough. Um, So what we've shown is that the eye is doing two fundamentally different things. It's grabbing light for vision, but there are specialised receptors in the eye, different from the ones you're you're using to make an image of me, which are detecting the dawn dust dusk signal, going into the clock and setting the clock to local time. And so you can be visually blind, and this is what we showed, but still have those receptors and regulate your clock. And we published a lovely study on 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 a lady just recently on that. If you have no eyes, then your ability to regulate the clock is gone completely. So we must be very careful in the way we define blindness. Visual blind, you know, the fact, if you've got your eyes, but you've got a disease which breaks down your rods and cones, you possibly can still regulate your clock. If you have no eyes, you drift through time for the rest of your life, essentially with unremitting jet lag. It's truly dreadful, yeah. uh, And in fact, I was in Scotland, um, when was it? Gosh, Friday. Talking to a whole bunch of ophthalmologists about this. We need to make um, that as part of our, our clinical assessment and indeed part of our clinical guidelines. Yes? Yes? Yeah, it's a, again a fascinating question. Um, first of all, there's, I, I know some of you won't like this, but there is absolutely no evidence that the phase of the moon will affect our biology. Um, and, and in fact, moonlight's very interesting because it appears fairly bright visually, but actually it's not bright enough to shift the clock unless you stare at it for a very, very long period of time. And that, that relates to a very important difference between the visual system and those receptors regulating the body clock. They're fairly insensitive to light, and they need quite a long light exposure to actually shift the clock. Yeah. Any? Yes, question here. Can you recommend
1: any uh, good uh, presents to people for Christmas? <laughs> 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 well, well
0: I, I would suggest Rhythms of Life, our book, which is an absolute classic. <laughs> um, okay, uh, about the back. Professor, thanks for a fantastic hour. Yes. Uh, just on naps. Yes. The famous stories of that uh, church will survive right throughout the Second World War. Yes. Well, the Churchill thing is very interesting, and that beautiful um, Roy Jenkins uh, biography, I think there's a quote from Clemmy saying, as long as Winston got his full eight hours, no matter when, he was fine. I mean, I have to say that he was fueled through whiskey and cigars and masses of stimulants, so I'm not sure if Churchill is a good rule of thumb. Um, However, you raise a very interesting point about the the siesta in Spain, for example, of course. What you do by taking a nap is there are two components that determine sleep. There's the clock, which is the stuff we've been talking about. But then there's a thing called sleep pressure, and it's the intuitive part about sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater your need for sleep. And what an app does is actually push back the sleep pressure so that you go to bed later. And that's been the classic sort of situation with um, uh, in Spain, where, where, where eating in nine, ten o'clock in the evening is, is, is perfectly acceptable because, of course, individuals have had a, had a siesta in the mid-afternoon for longer than 20 minutes, some significant amount of time. And what's interesting, of course, is that um, the, with, with the modernisation of Spain and the industrialization of Spain, these habits have gone out of, of the window, the, the, the siesta, and indeed you're beginning to see a change in the pattern of, of eating. They're tending to eat now earlier in the evenings, which is, which is quite fascinating, I think. Uh, yes, over there. very interesting. Yeah. Yes. It's a tricky one. Um, if you're travelling traveling west, it's much easier... Because our body clock is longer than 24 hours, it's easy for us to, ex- to, to, to lock onto to an expanding day, broadly speaking. And, and I think many of us would find anecdotally that travelling to the States, even to the, into, even to the west coast, is, is relatively OK. Uh, and you can adapt fairly quickly. Travelling east is a real problem. It's a problem because we're trying to adapt to a contracting day, but, but it's worse, because our response to light isn't uniform. So, for example, if we see light at dusk, we tend to delay the clock. We, 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 go, we go to bed later the next day. If we see light at dawn, we tend to push the clock forward in time and, and go to bed earlier. Now, travelling to Australia, we want to advance our clock in time. The trouble is, if you take a flight from London to Australia, you leave London usually on a night flight, and arrive there in the morning. And you're hitting your clock in exactly the wrong phase. You're hitting it during the delay phase. You're shifting it that way rather than actually forward. So if you want to adapt, you hide from natural light until the middle of the afternoon, then take the sunglasses off and go out, and then you're hitting the clock during the advance phase, which is what you need to do to adapt to Australia. If you're only gonna be there for a few days, you have no hope of adapting. You just, you know, just take the coffee. Um, no, I didn't say that. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I go to Perth quite a bit. And um, uh, what I found, uh, which fits with the biology, is if I, take, if I arrive in Perth, particularly in their afternoon, early evening, I get over my jet lag far more quickly than, than if I arrive I- in the morning. So try and get a flight t- to get you there later in the day. Then you're hitting the, the, the clock in the right phase. Yeah. By one hour. Um, when we lose an hour and people are getting up an hour earlier, you see a blip in the accident rate for the three days following. So there's actually a significant statistical effect of that one-hour sleep loss. Yes. I think I've exceeded my time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, thank you very much.